welcome to The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore. It is Saturday, April the 3rd, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, a look at day number five, an abbreviated day of the Derek Chauvin trial, and also a look at what happened at the United States Capitol yesterday with an officer being killed in what I would call a terror attack. Plus, a look at Joe Biden's American Jobs Plan and other news that you may have missed during this week. All of that coming up next. Welcome back. I hope you're well as we are in the second quarter of the year already. My goodness gracious me, time is flying by. I um, am just sitting here thinking about all the news that I haven't talked about over the last few days because I've been focused on one story and one story only, which is not something that I really like to do too much. Um, in terms of news, I would like to think that I could cover more than one thing. I don't want to be the 24-7... <laughs> I don't want to be the 24-7 cable news networks here in the United States or around the world that cover one story nonstop, although there are lots of cable news networks globally that don't just cover one story. They do cover more than one story. Um, but at least here in the United States, we have a really bad habit of covering one thing and one thing only over and over and over again and make that the whole day and night's news. And that's just not good. And I've, I think some of that certainly rubbed off on me here with this very important trial, because it is an important trial of um, Derek Chauvin. There's no question that this trial is important. I will get to it um, in this episode, but it's not going to be the first thing that I speak about. And it's not going to be the only thing that I speak about here on this episode. There is some news about the Capitol Police officer who has died. He has been identified as William Evans. He's known as Billy Evans. He has been a member of the police force for 18 years. He was a member of the Capitol Division's first responders unit. And he tragically lost his life today after succumbing to injuries. This has been quite a last few months for the Capitol Police officers. I talk to a lot of them in the hallways of the Capitol on a daily basis. It has been extremely difficult. Right after January 6th, they were working so much and so hard, 18-hour days, six days a week, I'm told, to keep up with the security demands after January 6th. And that's even with thousands of National Guard troops who have been called to the Capitol. Their shifts have decreased a little bit. They're now on 12-hour shifts, six days a week. Uh, it's very difficult for them to get any time off. The morale is extremely low in the Capitol Police Force uh, because of what happened on January 6th. Um, it, it has been such a tragic several months for them 
you know, one Capitol Police officer after January 6th took his life because of it. And then a D.C. Metropolitan Police officer had as well. And so just this on top of everything they have been to been through is just such a profound struggle and an ongoing ongoing tragedy for what these police officers have been going through. And meanwhile, there's this intense debate on Capitol Hill about what security should look like at the Capitol. It's become very political. It's become very partisan with some Republicans charging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of building a fortress um, here at the Capitol. That was Leanne Caldwell of NBC News yesterday talking about the horrible attack, and I would call it a terror attack as well, on the checkpoint area of the U.S. Capitol. And it's just really horrible that this has happened. It's an awful, awful thing. The life of a United States Capitol police officer taken by a raving mad person. Uh, I mean, it's just appalling. This is appalling. It's appalling. And William Billy Evans, he should still be with us right now. William Billy Evans, um, as you heard Leanne Caldwell say there, um, 18-year veteran, uh, but of the uh, Capitol Police, but the the fact that he's an 18-year veteran or the fact that he's a police officer to me is not the issue. The issue is, is that this is a human being who should still be here and he's no longer here. It's just, we have got to deal with violence in this country. We have got to deal with it and do something about it. We really do. And this is really sad. When I heard this news yesterday, I didn't watch Leanne Caldwell uh, on NBC News, as you know. Um, But I found out about this from where I normally find out about a lot of things. (laughs) Not everything, but many things. On social media, on Twitter, at the Popcorn R-E-E-L. That is where, well, that's my Twitter handle, the Popcorn R-E-E-L. But I found out about this very sad story on Twitter yesterday when the Capitol building and uh, I should say the surrounding areas of the property of the Capitol building and a few blocks have been all put on lockdown and people were advised to take cover. And it was just really sad. And you learned that a car had rammed in, someone driving a car had rammed into a checkpoint. And then you learned that two officers have been injured. And then you learned that one of them has been killed. And then you learned before that, that one of them had been slashed in the face with a knife by this person who ran out of his car and did that. And then you learned that the person who had done that had been shot dead himself by Capitol Police, obviously in an act of self-defense. He didn't listen to the commands that were given and he was shot dead and he had a knife. So, yeah, you know, if someone's charging at you with a knife and you 
do not listen to what they're saying or you do not respond to their commands, you should expect that you're going to get a hail of bullets. It was not known, at least I don't know, how many times this person was shot, but he is dead. His name was Noah Green. And Noah Green was a black man. And, you know, it's disgraceful that this happened. It's disgraceful that he did what he did. Um, I am never going to defend anybody who commits an act of violence, especially when it's not in self-defense. I don't care what their racial background is. I condemn this act of violence. I, I think that Noah Green, he's no longer here, but that's appalling. What he did is absolutely disgraceful. And he is now dead as well. And I know people are going to talk about mental health. I know that. I know that. I know that. People are going to talk about, well, you know, the Nation of Islam is a hate group and the Southern Poverty Law Center has called them a hate group and Farrakhan is someone who has said anti-Semitic things and he certainly has. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that he hasn't. Um, you know, I can't say that he hasn't. You know, some people will disagree with me vigorously. Farrakhan is in his 80s and I know that that organization has also done a lot of things to help black people and help lift them from circumstances that aren't good in some black neighborhoods that aren't as great. And it do, and like I say, you know, this is a thing I say all the time, but I don't like to say two things can be true at once. So Noah Green is no longer here either. And the whole thing is horrible. And I just think it was a despicable act that he did and it's horrible that William Evans, Billy Evans is no longer here. Billy Evans, by the way, was a white police officer. And it's it, the whole thing is horrible. And, you know, again, I, I'm sure that there's someone out there going, oh, yeah, great. Well, that white cop is dead. You know, I'm sure there's a human, not anybody listening to me. Uh, I'm just, I, I bet you, because people do feel that way and they link somehow what happened to Billy Evans to the evil committed and perpetrated by Derek Chauvin. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. This is not a scorecard. And I know there are people out there that go, yeah, it is a, a scorecard. Well, I disagree with you. It's not a scorecard. And linking Billy Evans and, and someone perhaps, and I don't know if this is even true, but if someone out there is gleeful that he's been killed and a black man's done this, I mean, because you see this as some larger game on a chessboard where somehow Billy Evans, who was looked at by all his colleagues as a really good, decent person, is somehow connected to Derek Chauvin, who was looked at by many people as a piece of garbage that he is and a murdering bastard then there's something wrong with a person who would connect those two things. And there's some very simplistic connection that's overall just unwarranted. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? That you, that not you, that someone out there would even do that. And I say that somewhat preemptively because I don't think that anybody listening to me believes that there's some great success story here that happened yesterday. It was a really horrible thing. And I, I'm heartbroken for the family of, of Mr. Evans. You know, this, this is just horrible. 
There's no need for his life to be taken. There's no need for it. It's just horrible. And so, you know, I, I do send my heartfelt condolences to Mr. Evans' family, you know, his mother, um, Janice, who must be going through absolute hell right now. Every mother goes through this kind of hell where when one of their children is taken, particularly a son for a mother. I mean, a daughter as well, of course, but I think there's a, a special bond there too um, between mothers and sons. And this one surely hurts it, it, like it would for any member of a family who has a loving and caring family. I should add that because some people's families do not have such love and care in them and there are people who really do not like each other in their families. That's a very common thing. This is a really horrible thing. I mean, and again, I really do feel so sad for that family that this man was taken from them, that this human being was taken from them. And what is just absurd to me is what I said earlier, this notion that someone in the world would be cheering you know, and I don't know factually that that's happened, but that someone would be thinking, oh, great, you know, yeah, that'll do it, that'll show them. It didn't show you anything. And connecting the killing of a white U.S. Capitol Police officer to... Derek Chauvin, a killing white male police officer, is just irrational. It's as stupid as trying to connect Minneapolis police officer Tao and being gleeful about six Asian women being killed in Atlanta. And then going, oh, yeah, that shows them because this Asian officer over here in Minneapolis, Tad Tao, you know, he was a executing bastard. And so, yeah, that shows them. It's like there's no relationship between those two events. The only thing that is a commonality in those events is that there are Asian people involved one way or another. The only commonality in the event of the U.S. Capitol Police officer who lost his life at the hands of one Noah Green and Derek Chauvin, who violently, brutally executed and tortured George Floyd for the world to see, is that both of those men, the U.S. Capitol Police officer who was killed yesterday, and Derek Chauvin, who is on trial right now for executing George Floyd, are both white male police officers. That's the only connection. So I don't know why there would be people who would be so sick to try to connect those two things. The world keeps turning, so things will take place on this planet. Some of them will be heinous, some of them will be good, meaning that someone that you know 
has achieved some measure of really good thing. They've bought a house, they've done this, they've done that. That's what I mean by good. And then you'll have events that aren't good. So that's where this is right now. President Biden uh, yesterday, along with the First Lady Jill Biden, sent their uh, condolences as well to the family of the fallen police officer. Um, it was just it was just really awful. You know, this is really bad. And one of the things that, um, by the way, President uh, Biden ordered uh, flags to be flown at half staff. Just really sad stuff. It really is sad. Um, <clears throat> two police officers, one of them, the other in officer is expected to survive. Uh, his injuries are not life-threatening. And this took place again, um, kind of forgive me for being a little bit discombobulated here because I don't think I've been clear enough with you. Um, but the event, the incident, excuse me, this violence took place um, on Friday yesterday um, at around what? Around one o'clock in the afternoon, just before one o'clock, around 1245 or so uh, Eastern time yesterday in the afternoon. And it's it's this is going to, you know, this is really sad. We've got this. And, and some people are going to look at this as mental illness. And of course, in every act. There is a degree of a mental illness situation going on in it. However, however, um, this is this is symbolic of something much larger. And one thing you heard Leanne Caldwell say there, or you may remember her saying, is that there is a, now this politicization of what happened, and uh, not specifically what happened. Forgive me. The politicization of security around the U.S. Capitol and that Republicans now are saying we don't need to have all this fencing and all these checkpoints and all this stuff going on around the building. You know, the hypocrisy of these Republicans knows no bounds. It knows no ends. It is bottomless. Oh, we don't want any security or any fencing or any checkpointing or any kind of this or that around the U.S. Capitol. But you want to build a wall and waste billions of dollars of taxpayer money and take stuff from the military and do all of this to build extra wall. Extra, because the wall is already there. The border wall. And now you want to build more of it. Oh, don't take that down. Don't do that. Don't, don't do this. Don't build a wall. We want more money to build more. Keep these so-called, well... Keep the individuals trying to come in. Keep them out. Keep them out. Oh, we can't have them coming in at the border. We've got to spend more money, more money. We've got to waste more taxpayer money to keep out. Keep out these, in quotes, people. But U.S. capital, security around the, the perimeter, and uh, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no problem. We don't want any of that built. We want them to take that down. All of those, and they are taking it down, by the way. They have taken some of the, a lot of this perimeter fencing they've already taken down. Oh, we, we, we don't want that. We don't, oh, no, no, to get rid of it. 
oh, uh, people coming in, Republican congresspersons coming into the U.S. Capitol Rotunda with their guns. Yeah, go ahead. Go on. That's perfectly fine. Let, let's just come on. Come on in. Come on down. Bring your gun. Hey, uh, security checks. And No, we don't want those. We, we don't want you uh, having to show your gun at the magnetometer. Just walk around it. Don't get searched. Don't let them search you. This is the kind of disgusting behavior from the Republican Party, which is no longer a party. It's a fascist cult now. And let's not kid ourselves. So you see where the hypocrisy is. You see that, you know. We don't want any of this. We don't want any of that. We want more fences at the border. We want more wall. But, oh, you know, the U.S. Capitol, where there's been violent events in January and in April. And who knows any unreported things that we are not privy to in between. Oh, take down the barricades, take down this, take... And they, as I said, they're taking them down. But at the border where the only violence being perpetrated is by the Border Patrol, if any, if that. No, oh, no, no, we need more, we need more wall, build more wall, we need to bully God. And everybody's trying to give... President Biden, the, uh, I don't know, the sling. They're throwing rocks at the president. I, I don't defend President Biden on everything. I think that there have been some things he's done so far that have been very beneficial. And I think there's some things so far he's done that I do not like. But I get it. At some point, the honeymoon is over. And it's not quite 100 days yet for President Biden. But I will say this. By the end of this month, we would have hit 100 days of office. And, you know, at some point, the problem does become President Biden's, if it hasn't already, when it comes to the border. And the Republicans are shouting the loudest. I think I, I said this before about the uh, legendary poet W.B. Yeats. About the most wicked people, and I'm paraphrasing now, the most wicked people have all of these um, loud proclamations. And the people who have goodness and uh, integrity in their hearts seem to speak awfully quietly. Yeah, I mean, that's a paraphrase of what W.B. Yeats said years and years ago. But W.B. Yeats was correct. The Republicans are at it again shouting and screaming to the top of their voices. And of course, what, what happens in the corporate news media? They go and take the loud voice, the loud, unruly, lying voice that takes things way out of proportion and starts to follow that voice around and then repeats the talking points of that loud, ugly, lying, repugnant voice of the Republicans and then starts posing questions to the press secretary, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, and to President Biden last week at his first press conference. And that's how this stuff gets done. They don't repeat the Democratic talking points, whether Democrats shout loudly or not. And of course, Democrats don't shout very much at all. And only now, and President Biden gets this, and Vice President Harris gets this, now 
you are hearing Democrats start to make some noise. Chuck Schumer made noise in February when the uh, February and March when the uh, it was March last month when the American Rescue Plan was passed. He went on a victory lap and I told you at the time, I'm glad he was doing that. I'm glad he did it because you have to go on a victory lap. You have to make it clear. President Biden had taken a tour around the country, as did Vice President Harris, you know, saluting the American rescue plan. 1.8 or 1.9 trillion dollars dedicated to rejuvenating the American economy, rejuvenating and and, uh, getting a kickstart to the average person's life economically. All kinds of things. And he went, and so did Vice President Harris around the country, to absolutely talk up this accomplishment. And I thought it was a good thing. And they've got to keep doing these kinds of things. And they are doing them. So, but the but the press doesn't cover that. I mean, they do cover it. But they don't cover, they don't keep repeating the Democratic talking point unless it's about a scandal. Unless it's about Al Franken. Unless it's about... Justin Fairfax, unless it's about Ralph Northam, unless it's about Andrew Cuomo. That's the only time you will hear, at least in, from my observation, one of the only times you will hear a corporate news media reporter repeating any kind of talking point about Democrats or from Democrats. But when Democrats are talking about getting things done for the country, You do not hear that talking point about something affirmative for the American public coming from very many reporters on the beat. You don't. And if I'm wrong about that, please, someone can email politocratpod at gmail.com and let me know where I'm wrong. How many times last week was President Biden asked about the crisis at the border? And there is a crisis at the border. That's why he used the word. But the thing is, is that if you are not following this as closely as I am, or if, as some of you are, then you miss the fact that the previous occupant of the White House ripped kids away from their parents just because they could do that and just because they wanted to do that and because they are cruel and because they love doing that that act of cruelty that they commit to those kids and their parents is what they love doing. These are psychopathic people, sociopathic people. In these scenarios with President Obama before and now President Biden afterwards, there are reasons why those kids got separated that had to do, in the case of President Obama, certainly with any criminality and drug crimes that these parents had. And so therefore leaving the children with these parents when it came to status here in the U.S. was not going to be a good idea because of the fact that they would be treated, the parents that is, as those of committing drug offenses inside the country. And those drug offenses were serious enough that warranted a separation of the parents, the kids from their parents. That stuff never gets talked about. But... Now it's President Biden's now taking kids from the pen. And the thing is, he's not. There are real reasons why these things are happening at the border. I'm not justifying them. 
President Biden, I think, is unveiling or has unveiled um, a plan to deal with this. He had, I think, unveiled this during the campaign before he became president. So this is something that we've got to pay attention to. And what's been going on with what happened yesterday at the U.S. Capitol checkpoint and also not to mention the morale of the U.S. Capitol Police. I want to know something about that, by the way, before I go to the break, is where on earth is the morale? Why do you think the morale is low? I think that's an easy question to answer. I don't think too many people who are shouting about security Republicans give a rats about these U.S. Capitol Police. They're not being paid well, I don't think. What kind of salaries are they getting? They're doing, as you heard in the report from Leanne Caldwell, 16-hour shifts now reduced back to 12 hours. Seven days a week or six days a week. Easter Sunday is tomorrow for those of you who are in the Christian faith and who observe Easter Sunday. Yesterday was Good Friday. And that happened on Good Friday yesterday where this, again, for those of you who are of the Christian faith, I am of the Christian faith. That, ha- that happened yesterday on Good Friday. And tomorrow's Easter Sunday. And many of these U.S. Capitol Police officers, they're not going to be spending any time with their family over Easter. And literally, less than three months ago now, less than three months ago, there was a terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol building, and many of these officers have not been the same since. As you heard, the morale is low. People have taken their lives. One of the officers took his life, um, and it was a he, you know, just after January 6th. You've had another officer, Brian Sicknick, killed. I mean, this is... Are these... Officers who are still in the U.S. Capitol Police, are they receiving counseling? I hope they are. Are they receiving an increase in pay for the Herculean job that they are doing? I hope they are. Has there been authorizations in Congress or in D.C. or wherever this would go? Presumably Congress. Has there been authorizations for an increase in their pay for what they're going through? Hazard pay, whatever. I mean, are they being protected? Are their families being protected? Are they being shown the appreciation? Because it's all well and good for Eugene Goldman, I believe is his name. I may have his last name. Excuse me, Eugene Goodman. It's all well and good for Eugene Goodman, who, who is an American hero, who should get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And it's all good for other people to get congressional gold medals and gold stars. But what about their pay? What about an increase in their pay? What about security? What about pension pay? What about an increase in all those things? What about more time off for them and their families? It's no good looking at a congressional medal of honor or gold star or whatever if Your family isn't well protected. 
If you're not getting paid the money you should be getting, if you're not getting the salary, as I say, same thing, that you should be getting and the health care protections, and I hope they all do. I think they do. They should. This is just crazy. And then these Republicans to sit there and argue and politicize this, what's new? They don't care about security, these Republicans. You've got all this other stuff going on I'll get to in after the break. And I'll also get to, um, as well, later on, the uh, fifth day of the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. I will get to that. It's not going to be a very um, long analysis or a long exploration because it was a very short day yesterday in that trial. Um, Judge Peter Cahill um, released the jurors relatively early yesterday. I'll get into that a little bit later, but I want to get into the stories that I'm going to get to next. So stay with me here. You're listening to the Politocrat Daily Podcast with me, yours truly, Omar Moore. And I'll be right back. Thank you very much um, for tuning in here on this Saturday edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. It's really, really an honor to have you aboard. And thank you. Um, I have been not too happy these last few days with the Derek Chauvin trial, as you know, <laughs> as you have heard, I have not been happy and I'll get to that. Um, not my unhappiness with the lousy job that <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. It's not funny. I think the prosecution is doing a very poor job. Now, there've been some moments that they've been good in, but it's those moments have come few and far between which I will get to. I promise you I will. Um, but I want to get to, and I'll get to specifically um, what I thought was a, a better day for the prosecution yesterday somewhat. But then again, um, I'll leave that till later on here. I want to get back to, you know, the, this hypocrisy. You know, when these two terroristic shootings happened over the last couple of weeks, and it is a good time to remind people that just because the media is no longer talking about it, the drive to stop hate and violence against the AAPI community, the American, the Asian American Pacific Islander community and Asian people in general has not stopped. I know people have already not stopped. I mean, I know people have not seen that on their TV lately, perhaps, but I'm definitely someone, and I'm sure you are, I hope you are, who is committed to doing all they can in ways small, large, intermediate to stop this hatred against Asian people and this violence against Asian people. It's got to stop right now. It's got to end now. And there needs to be not just different penalties, but there needs to be, as I've said before, a welcoming of people, a welcoming of Asian people. And I'm talking not about Asian people who are making it very well in the country because they are welcomed and they are and they still get targeted, by the way, too. I'm not going to act like that doesn't happen. But I'm talking about Asians in general. 
the Asian that you do not see on television at a company, the Asian that you do not see on television um, in some area of power. I'm talking about the Asian person who comes here newly from another country. Um, the Or the everyday Asian who is an American here who is, you know, living their life. So we need to end this hatred against Asian people of any walk of life, of any background, of any discipline. And, um, and I will certainly um, continue to emphasize the um, that message and other messages that also refer to welcoming people. We need, as I've said for many an episode now, on and off, but I have done throughout the beginning, since the beginning of this podcast of last in last, last year, that we need to become a more compassionate, loving, and empathetic society here in the United States. But globally, we need to be that too. Because a global perspective is an important perspective. Got to have it. We've got to have a global perspective. What's going on in Ethiopia right now is absolutely evil. It's an atrocity. It's a human rights crime. And it's a crime against humanity. What's going on there in Tigray, in northern Ethiopia. The kinds of violence against women and the, and the violence in general, it, it's just evil. And we must do something to end it as well. We must. And, it, and there are other parts of the world where all kinds of horrific things are going on. And we've got to be, at the very least, aware of what's going on. And as James Baldwin said, if you do not know what's gone on before you, you do not know what is going on around you. And that's just so true. We've got to have an awareness, not only an awareness of ourselves, but an awareness of the world and what's going on in it. Of course, I'm not sitting here saying that you should know every single incident that's going on at any single moment everywhere in the world. Of course, I'm not saying that to you, dear listener. I'm simply saying that it is important for us to walk with a perspective that is not just limited to the country or the city that we live in. And I think once we gain a global perspective, we have a better understanding of actually what is happening in the city or the country we live in. You use the world, you, you, you look at the world as a bearing point to inform you, among many other things, of what is going on in your world, in your city, in your country. And as I've always said, what American policies are abroad are absolutely the definition of what they are at home. And what American foreign policy does informs and is representative of what is being done inside the country. That is so true. It always has been true. So, you know, that's important. It really is. I want to just say that. And then, then I wanted to talk about, yeah, you know, and the reason, by the way, the reason why I mentioned the, the two shootings, you know, these Republicans were all about, oh, guns are not a problem. This is an attack on us. You know, that's what I, I'm sorry, I, I want to finish my thought. Uh, pardon, pardonnez-moi. 
The reason I mentioned those two terrorist attacks, the one in Atlanta and the one in Boulder, Colorado, literally seven or eight days apart from each other, uh, is because the Republicans, speaking of the hypocrisy, these Republicans didn't want anything done about guns. Oh, guns are no, you know, guns aren't the problem. It's the people, the people, it's the mental stuff. It's the guns, it's not the guns, it's not the guns. It's not the fact that the gun lobby is giving us millions of dollars every year for our campaign contributions. It's got nothing to do with that, you see. It's the people. And, oh my gosh, if you institute background checks, you're taking away our liberty. I mean, that's the uh, the mantra, isn't it, from Republicans? You're taking our liberty from us. And it's a game. They know that no liberty's been taken away. When did President Obama take away guns from you? Never did. And they all know that. President Clinton, all of them, all the Democratic press, they've not taken away guns. In fact, there was a measure passed under Obama or an executive order or something that allowed people to carry guns in national parks. Under Obama. So all this nonsense about, oh, the Democrats want to take your guns from you. It's just a big load of steaming pile of crap. It, it just doesn't exist. This is the fear mongering. And it's something to get the non-educated base into a hot lather about. L-A-T-H-E-R, not L-A-V-A. Because it would be really difficult to wash your hands with hot molten lava. Hot molten L-A-V-A. <laughs> you wouldn't have any hands to wash with. The first moment that that hits your skin... Oh, God, forgive me for sounding a little bit sadistic there, but um, it's just, it's a world of hypocrisy, isn't it, with the Republicans? And I think what we need to do now, and of course the violence of voter suppression, because there's a lot of violence in that. There is a violence to preventing people from voting. And the whole point of me saying what I've said these last few minutes is to get us to act. What we must do, as we are now in April, is to put our awareness boots on. Speaking of global perspectives, we've got to now have voter perspectives. And we now have to put our voting shoes on. I know we don't get to vote yet until, what, next year? Some people do get to vote this year in off-year elections, municipal, local elections and things. Fine, that's good. But I'm saying we've now got to start getting involved. We've got to start donating money if you've got money that you can spare to donate to the organizations that are dedicated towards gun sense laws, better laws that are sensible to safeguard people instead of having guns proliferating this nation as they are. You know, it's just not going to work for us anymore. This can't continue. I mean, it's gone on for 244, almost 245 years. Tomorrow will be three months short of 245 years of this country. And, you know, this is this has gone on for that long and longer. Guns are always valued over human beings, over human lives. 
And I want you to donate or join an organization committed to ending gun violence and committed to having better gun sense laws, actual gun sense, not better ones, because we don't really have very many of them, actual gun sense laws. Gun sense, as in S-E-N-S-E. We've got to have that. I mean, this is this is just, it's obvious, isn't it? And as I said, the death cult, the death cult and fascist cult are interested in getting more money from the gun lobby, which funnels millions of dollars to their campaigns every single election year. Every single year they get money from the NRA, they get, which is now pretty much bankrupt. Um, get money from gun manufacturers, Smith & Wesson, and all these, you know, places. These lobbyists write the laws. ALEC, A-L-E-C, is a horrible legislative organization that puts billions of dollars into fighting against gun sense legislation and against background checks. The House of Representatives last month passed a really good background check law that allows more time to check for gun background gun checks, extended that provision from three days to a month or more. I mean, three days to three weeks, I think it was, or whatever, I don't remember off the top of my head. I mean, this is what's gone on. And one of the things I want to do in connection to getting those of you listening here in the United States in particular, if not beyond, to get active is to start to give you more information about what is going on in Congress. Because I know many people do not have the time to decipher any of it. And to be frank, I don't either. <laughs> but but I am going to um, do that because it's really important. And since I am running a podcast that you so kindly listen to on a daily basis, I definitely think that it would be, I would be derelict in my duty to you, dear listener, if I did not more consistently provide some kind of news about what is going on in Congress, the votes that are going on in Congress, in the House, in the Senate, what kinds of things are happening on Capitol Hill, you know, because I can't give you an update on your local government and what it's doing. I can't give you an update on your municipality and what it's doing. There's millions of municipalities in the country, right? There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, at least. Thousands of them. And that requires you having to look into that yourself, whichever city you live in. And since I don't know which city you live in, you have to be the person to find five minutes of your time to find out what's going on, whether you listen to the local news, whether you actually go to the web pages of your board of supervisors or your assembly or to your state senate. You know, I may occasionally cover some things that go on in some states in their senates. I did that with Georgia and these odious voter suppression bills that have been passed through the Georgia legislature that are really going to do horrendous damage so that when you hear about some Republican winning, you're going, wait a minute, how could that be possible? Well, it would be possible because of what's happened in the Georgia state legislature recently. And by the way, the Senate must pass this bill that the House has passed in terms of voting 
Because if this Voting Rights Act bill gets passed or this bill to protect voting gets passed in the Senate, this garbage that the Georgia legislature has been doing is not going to work. It will invalidate any law they've passed. So this is why it's important that we follow what's going on in the, the Senate. And we put pressure on Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, put pressure on these Republicans as well, as well to straighten up and fly right. And it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Otherwise, we're going to have, well, we already have a banana republic. We're going to have a totalitarian state here. And we saw that happen with the previous occupant of the White House. And some may argue that we've had a totalitarian state here, if I can pronounce it correctly, that we've had a totalitarian state here for many a decade, for many years. And I don't necessarily disagree with them to some degree. You know, I don't necessarily disagree, I should say. Because I just think that... um, Well, when you've got when you've got one clinic available for for abortion in an entire state, what would you call that? I mean, wouldn't would that be totalitarian? Would that be totalitarian enough for you? One abortion clinic in an entire state. That happens in America. That has happened. It is happening right now. There are states in the United States, and I don't want to name the state for getting it because I might get it wrong, but there is a state in this country, at least one, if not more, where there is only one abortion clinic in the entire state. If that's not somehow totalitarian, I don't know what is. If that's not a an attack on a woman's right to choose, I don't know what is. If that's not totalitarian as against her I don't know what is so we've got to have this perspective that's more open and I know there's so many things coming at us you've got your vaccinations that you're thinking about you've got all this other stuff flying around and you've got to think about voting because next year is going to be so critical it's very possible that You could have Mitch McConnell again as your majority leader in the Senate after literally a a year absence. Literally, it could happen next year if we don't get into the streets or if we don't get to educating each other, if we don't get to putting pressure on these senators and state legislators and all the other things. If we don't, you know, come on, there's so many things. But I hopefully, what I aim to do is to help those of you who aren't so politically active to start thinking about these things in addition to the things you already think about. And I plan to do that a bit more as we are into this second quarter of 2021. I I think it's something that's very important. I mean, film companies... Movie studios, they've already given you their slate for what's going on in in the summer. I dare say some of you may already be aware of the kinds of movies that are going to be released this summer. And here we are on April 3rd. So why can't we start to get a grasp on what's happening 
in these elections coming up either this year or in 2022. There's no reason why we can't also do that for five minutes. Well, I hope to and aim to and will provide on a somewhat regular basis an update on what is going on in the House and in the Senate. And I'll give you links and resources. And that's where this newsletter that I was talking about earlier will come in. And the newsletter is not ready yet. It's being tested. It's not ready just yet, but I do aim to get it um, ready shortly in the near future sometime. And I hope it does work. And I will ask you to subscribe to it so that you do get some of the information that you may not be getting in the corporate news media. You do get information about communities that you aren't hearing about. That's what the endeavor of this newsletter will be. And also some information for you about things that you need to know. So that you're not getting this narrow slice of news every day and there's no perspective grounding it. There's no dots connected to it. So that's really the uh, goal here. I promise I'll get to one or two things in the news. Then, of course, the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin, the murder trial of the murderer, Derek Chauvin, coming up right after this. Vince DeCola in the training montage for the film Rocky IV. I hope that uh, you enjoyed that piece of music. Um, it is from the original motion picture soundtrack of Rocky IV. And um, whatever you may think of Rocky IV, it does have some really good music. <laughs> it does. It has some good music. It does. Why do you think I play these tunes? <laughs> Oh, dearie me. You know, Rocky IV, you know, one of the things I remember about that film that <laughs> kind of, there's a certain thing about that movie there that he does say Sylvester Stallone in the title, uh, as the title character. Um, and he says, after he goes to Moscow, and I'm not spoiling it for anybody because I know the vast majority of you probably haven't seen Rocky IV, but you've certainly heard of it, I think. And uh, after he goes to Moscow... Rocky, and defeats Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren. Um, he turns around to someone, I think he says it to the the reporter in the ring uh, who's, <laughs> who's interviewing him post-fight in the ring. He says, people can change. Everybody can change. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because there is truth to that. Of course people can change. And everybody can change. But the one thing that Sylvester Stallone's Rocky character left out is the three or four words here. I think it's four words. If they want to. Those are the four words he left out. If they want to. Right? If you want to change, yeah, then people can change. If they want to change. 
if you want to change, yeah, then you can. Will you? Will I? <laughs> you know, time will tell. What it depends, you know, what is it that we are talking about? Well, that's an awfully broad question, but I don't know. I'm just wandering off into a philosophical realm that probably perhaps uh, can be put aside here. <laughs> can be put aside here. Um, back again. And that is great music. Vince DeCola, the that's training montage from uh, Rocky IV. So some of the news that I have not covered, and I'm going to mention it briefly and then move on. This whole thing with Representative Matt Gates. Now, this is a Republican in Florida. This is a guy that was jailed for DUI, driving under the influence, when he was, I don't know, I don't know how old he was. He probably was in, in uh, within the last 10 years, uh, whenever it was. He was put behind bars for a DUI. He's in an orange jumpsuit. There's a mugshot of him. And I guess his wealthy daddy or whomever got him out of jail. Um, and uh, now he's a congressman. How did that happen in Florida? <laughs> I mean, how does that possibly happen in Florida? Sorry, Florida. <laughs> or as some of the people in Florida say, Florida. D-U-H-F-L-O-R-I-D-U-H. Literally, I'm not kidding you. There are people who live in Florida, Floridians, who actually nickname their own state, Florida, as an F-L-O-R-I-D-U-H. I kid you not. I kid you not. Just think about that for a moment, that people are that self-deprecating about their own state. <laughs> I mean, should tell you something. But Congressman, in quotes, Matt Gates, who is a Republican, is now under investigation, or there's been a probe opened, into a possible connection he has with sex trafficking. I mean, this is just... That should really send alarm bells. While I've been here for the last four days or so talking about this trial, the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, this has been a big news story, by the way, about Matt Gates. New York Times blew this thing wide open earlier this week about Matt Gates. I'll, prov I'll provide a link, by the way, for those of you who may not have been aware of this news story. But my goodness me, this is something that is, uh, oh boy, I, this is just really, I mean, again, again, this is really bad and it doesn't look good for him. And it's another one of these scumball politicians or scumbag politicians who shouldn't be there. Matt Gates is the same politician who mocked, mocked coronavirus just over a year ago when he was walking in to his office with a gas mask on. And then I believe it turned out later on he contracted coronavirus himself. These people are just really disgusting. And you're tired of hearing me say that, but you know it's true. It's like what Michael Hutchins said in the song Never Tear Us Apart. When he was in excess, he's sadly no longer with us. Don't ask me 
what you know is true. I mean, you know it's true what I'm saying to you about these Republicans. You know this yourself. And Matt Gates is one of them. And this fascist cult that he is part of is a criminal cult. It's a criminal cult. It's a criminality ring. These folks are rank criminals, sociopaths, psychopaths. And now he's saying, oh, I got set up. I've got, oh, this whole probe, it's a setup. I've been set up. I don't know anything about sex trafficking. I have nothing to do with any of it. I'm not part of it. And the thing is, what strikes me as strange is he says he adopted this young man from a different country. I forget which country it was. Colombia, Cuba, wherever. It might have been Cuba. And this guy is about 25 or 26. He said he's adopted him since, I don't know, since he was a teen. I don't, and it's like, this smells awfully weird to me. And he looks a certain... I Listen to me. I just don't think that this is all on the level. And I wonder if this is connected to this trafficking allegation and this probe uh, on Representative Gates. It's awfully weird. Oh, and he's not my... And some people were saying that this particular person he says he has adopted is actually... No, he's not his adoptive son. He's his boyfriend. So there's the uh, accusation there. And you've got... And whether that accusation is one made based on some kind of sincere belief or some speculation or if it's something that turns toward um, something that homophobes would do. I don't know what the genesis of that is. But you've got people going... Wait a minute, no, this guy's actually your boyfriend and why don't you just admit it? That's the angle that, if I was going to throw that allegation, that's what I'd be coming from it as. From that point, just admit, okay, he's your boyfriend. So move on and move on and move on. You know, it, but that's a whole nother whole story. And then this whole thing with this trafficking and not to mention all the other things in between with Gates and him say, oh, the election is illegitimate and all this nonsense. And now look what's happening. That's a, such a story that I'm going to link to. The New York Times this week did a really good expose on it, blew it out of the water. And again, the New York Times, again, not my favorite newspaper. As I've said before, they will occasionally do some very good investigative reporting. In fact, more than occasionally. Often it's the frame that I don't like with the New York Times, among other things, and the wording and the way they put their articles. But there are some stories that are very, very good. Their investigative work is very good. And they've got some things wrong in the past. We know what happened with Wen Ho Lee. If you remember from the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Wen Ho Lee, the uh, Chinese-American, the American uh, physicist or scientist and was accused. And the New York Times had basically threw him under the bus Where's his movie? You know, where's the movie on Wen Ho Lee? I'm sure there was a documentary on him, but where's the movie on Wen Ho Lee? You know, Clint Eastwood, who I really do not care for, did a movie on Richard Jewell. Remember Richard Jewell? I'll ring, I'll ring the bell for you. Richard Jewell was the uh, white male um, who 
was falsely accused of being the Atlanta bomber in Olympic Park in 1996. Or was it 1998? Oh, geez, I can't believe I'm forgetting the date. Very bad, very bad, very bad. Can't believe I'm not remembering the date. Oh, well. I believe it was 1996. It could have been 1998, though. But whichever year, it, one of those two years it was, and it was definitely one of those two years. I think it's 1998. Um, the, uh, the man, the young man there, the, uh, I know he was in his 40s, actually. He, he's still young. Richard Jewell was accused of bombing, of the bombing in the Centenary Park, the Olympic Park in Atlanta. And he had been held, he had been questioned, he had been this, he had been that. And and the newspapers had him had his had his guts for garters. He was he had no chance. He was everywhere around the world. The guy couldn't. He and it it turns out it wasn't him. It was Eric, Richard Rudolph, or whatever his name is, who did the bombing. Oh my goodness me! And of course, the toll taken on Richard Jewell was immense. And he died in 2007. No doubt of a broken heart. By the way, it was 1996. Um, so I correct myself. 1996. I knew it was one of those two years. In the Summer Olympics in 1996. This guy was a security guard, law enforcement, blah, blah, blah. And he, he, you know, white guy accused falsely. How about that? Because we know what that's like being accused falsely. Don't we now? But, you know, it's... it's uh, Richard Jewell, I think the guy probably did whatever he died of, but he probably died of a broken heart, too. His life was never the same. Never the same. He got a movie from Clint Eastwood. When Ho Lee, who um, I think is still around, um, I don't know where, where's his movie? From Clint Eastwood or anyone else. When Ho Lee's life was turned upside down. And I don't care how many times the New York Times or anyone else apologized to him. I mean, it was ter- it was horrible. Falsely accused of, of having secrets and secrets against the Americans. And, and it's like, no, he didn't. He didn't. And the Times got it wrong. But anyway, bottom line is the New York Times does get things wrong. We know that very well. I've documented a lot of them. Jason Blair and uh, Judith Miller and all the rest of it. But the Times has done some very good stories at this as well. By the way, the New York Times is telling me that San Francisco County is at a high-risk level. Coronavirus. I'm going to get to that too in a few moments, really quickly. But this thing with Gates is Gates. Representative Matt Gates is he needs to really face accounting for this. It's really disgusting if it's true. It wouldn't shock me if it were. This probe uh, is being done and I hope that it is thorough and it isn't about trying to just push things under the bus or push things under a rug. But this whole thing about a politician saying, oh, I was framed. That is the first thing a guilty politician says. Remember when Anthony Weiner said that uh, all those pics of his penis were hacked? It's like, give me a break. It's hacked? How is that hacked? And it's you. And you admit that it's you. But it's hacked. So then what's the picture? So then why are you taking a picture of your privates? 
in the first place. So then, like, how are you... I mean, people have got the right to do what they want to do behind closed doors. That's their problem. I'm not their problem. That's their prerogative. But what I'm saying is, how are you claiming that your media, your social media is hacked, but you're not answering the bigger question is, why have you got pictures of your privates in the first place? <laughs> it's like, nobody asks that question. They get hung up on, well, well he, he says he was hacked, and that's a lie. But no one's answering or addressing the bigger question is, why the hell are you taking pictures of your privates in the first place? Congressman Weiner. I mean, <laughs> we miss the obvious, don't we sometimes, dear listener? We, we miss the obvious. And this happens when all these... Po- it's like with Ralph Northam. And Ralph Northam, by the way, the governor of Virginia, recently uh, ended the death penalty in Virginia, signed a law ending it. And I congratulate him. This is the same guy who just, what, two years before was the black-faced governor. A white governor wearing blackface in school in, in a yearbook, standing next to a Klansman. And he said, well, I can tell you it was me, but it wasn't, the Klansman wasn't me, it was the person next to him who's standing there in blackface. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm not the Klansman, but I am the guy with the blackface on. Uh, it's just the, the things that people focus on or say and what we fixate on and what we pivot to and miss the big 65,000 pound, dollar, euro, whatever currency elephant in the room. It's just amazing how we don't look at what's right in front of us or we choose not to look at it because we don't want to face it because you might feel uncomfortable. You might feel a little nervous. You might have to look at yourself in the process and whether you contributed to the thing de jour that you don't want to look at because it makes you uncomfortable. You might have to soul search about that friend of yours who actually is a rapist, but you think he's such a nice guy. So this Matt Gates probe, Gates probe, <laughs> this investigation into Matt Gates has got to be done thoroughly and I'll go on from there. I'm not going to condemn the guy um, immediately, although I do think this guy is a piece of garbage and I do think that this guy probably is involved. <laughs> but I won't say anything more than that. <laughs> oh, God, from, I mean, what's the chances that someone who was busted for DUI, driving under the influence, has got some connection to a probe, or excuse me, to sex trafficking? Is there a sliding scale somewhere on that, on there, on that? Or is it, is it just two disconnected, unrelated things? I mean, I talked about connections earlier on in this podcast episode about, well, you know, you know, Officer Will, Billy Evans and uh, Derek Chauvin. I mean, you can't connect those two things. Anyway, I look. Um, good grief. Ay, ay, ay. By the way, I want to move on. God, that is not a good segue. The next thing I want to talk about is coronavirus. Now, again, um, I should say that President Biden is ahead of schedule. Ahead of schedule. Ahead of schedule. I say that three different times or more 
because he had said that in the first hundred days he wanted a hundred million shots in the arms of people in this country. And not only has he got to a hundred million shots in less time than that, he is looking at getting 200 million total shots from vaccinations for coronavirus into the arms of Americans by April 29th, which would be day 100 of his administration. He's already at 141 million shots as of yesterday. That's a staggering accomplishment. Which means that 39% of American adults, adults inside the United States, have received at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. These numbers are at the CDC. These numbers are on the homepage of whitehouse.gov, as is the time I am recording this. You may go to whitehouse.gov and no longer see those factoids on the top of the homepage. But as of the time I'm recording, they are there. As of April 2nd, as of April 2nd, 141 million shots in the arms of Americans of this vaccine, vaccination. That's excellent. That has got to be Trump to do, Trump. That has got to be saluted. And it has, you have to do a victory lap on that. And, he, and, and President Biden is. So there's now still, with almost four full weeks, we're just 27 more days or so away from April the 29th. 27 more days, including today, from April 29th. And on that 27th day, 200 million shots are supposed to be reached. We're supposed to get to that target. We're already at 141 million shots. I think that this country will reach 200 million shots before April 29th. I think that this is a tremendous accomplishment. And President Biden and the CDC and others in the administration have to be given a lot of credit for that. This started on January 20th, okay? So when he walked into the White House on January 20th, 2021, that's when this started from. 200 million shots in 100 days, and right now from January 1st of this year to April 2nd of this year, 2021, 141 million shots of a vaccine have gone into the arms of Americans, American adults. That is a sensational mark. That must be saluted, acknowledged, and you must dance to that. Unless, of course, you haven't yet received your vaccination shots. And this is just a tremendous accomplishment. It really is. And these states also have to get some credit. You know, California has recently opened up the eligibility for people. I am really concerned about the black communities of this country not getting this shot um, or not getting it in the numbers they should. Yes, there are some people in the black communities of this country who are obviously skeptical due to the long-running history of the medical profession's violence against them and experimentations of violence against them and the violent experiments on their bodies and, of course, the U.S. government's experiments against and on black people. 
So those are the reasons why there are some members of some black communities who are skeptical. You've got to put that picture in focus and context. And then there are people just generally who are skeptical, but we need to get the resources that make sure that that vaccine comes to the black communities, the brown communities, the native populations of this country. They are the ones who are most at risk from this coronavirus. And I'm telling you, they are the ones who should always be first with this particular vaccination. I'm telling you, you should be spending billions of dollars in all these states to make sure that black and brown populations and native populations are the ones who get this vaccination first, not the rich. And once that happens, I'll be a lot happier about what's going on. I mean, there's no use celebrating that you got... Look, I get that people celebrate that they got their vaccination shots because I know there's not been much to celebrate over the last year or so. So people are going to go on Twitter and on other social media and they're going to post photos of them with their vaccine shot and great, good. I'm happy for them. But I'm sorry, there's so many people in this country who A, don't have the vaccination, who B won't get one, not because they don't want them, because there's just not any access granted to them. And also there's people around the world. 90% of the world doesn't yet have a vaccination shot. And it's predominantly poorer countries that have been ravaged, of course. They were once rich countries, but they were ravaged by the European white imperialism and and uh, colonialism that destroyed the countries. So now the only countries that are really getting this vaccination are the United States, are the United Kingdom, and maybe a few other countries in Europe. But the vast majority of the world does not have a vaccination shot. And I'm sorry, I'm not celebrating Jack when 90% of the world does not have a vaccination shot. I'm sorry, that may make me whatever it makes me in your eyes. But 90%, I spoke about global perspectives, having a global perspective earlier. I'm not saying that people shouldn't celebrate. Come on, or festival. Celebrate then. Uh, but, but I just think that when you've got 90% of the world still unvaccinated and likely not to ever be vaccinated, kind of a somewhat hollow celebration except for yourself which I guess is all that counts never mind the rest of the world Oh my goodness me, I guess 
she's always here with her fantastic song and her music and her sound and but still the heart aches for one of the greatest talents we have ever seen on this planet the one the only miss lady day billy holiday there with big stuff thank you again for listening you know i do appreciate it uh, very much you have lots of things you'd rather be doing, perhaps, uh, or you could be doing, I should say. <laughs> but um, but I'm glad, I'm delighted and, and thankful and grateful that you've chosen to listen to yours truly, to me, on this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, my podcasts are not typically half an hour long. They can be sometimes. But the fact that you know that this podcast sometimes runs in excess of an hour and often runs in excess of one hour and sometimes much longer than that, oftentimes much longer. I appreciate that you, you stick around and listen to, to this podcast and to me. Thank you very much. I get it. You know, some people may feel a little bit bruised by what I just said there before the break about uh, celebrating uh, a COVID-19 vaccination. And, you know, and I, and I think that people should celebrate if they want to, but I just think that... Um, at the very same time, you know, there's 90% of the country, of the world, rather, that is never, it doesn't have and will never get a vaccination, even with the efforts of COVAX, the foundation organization um, that is dedicated toward getting uh, vaccinations to people who otherwise wouldn't get them around the world. Not because they don't want them, but because the access, there's no you know, and all these rich countries that are buying up vaccine. I mean, the United States and then this myth that, oh, California is running out of supply. When the United States as a whole is spending so much money buying up this vaccine, the United Kingdom has supplies of it in excess as well. And they're buying up these rich countries and these governments are buying up vaccine. So there's a bit of sweetness to this. I'm very happy that that. Uh, Joe Biden is going to reach this goal as president and shatter it. But what does that mean for these other countries that don't have anything? I mean, yeah, I do want to think about places other than the place I live in. So sue me, right? I mean, because other people will say, why do you care about the rest of those countries out there? Tough. It's America you should care about. Well, I can care about both, can't I? I can care about this country and... I can care about other countries. That doesn't make you somehow less liking of the country you live in. And I'm not going to use the word patriotic because that word is thrown around so much and way out of context. So I, I think that we can be capable of doing two things at once. We can chew gum and we can walk at the same time. I think that's something we can all do. Some of us can do that. If we are so fortunate to be able to walk, I should say. So, look, that is that with that. You know, I don't want to go on about... I've made my point about people posting their celebration photo. And I know some people will say, well, it's to help. It's to get awareness out there. Well, just tell people that they should get vaccinated. You shouldn't have to be... Anyway, I'm walking down a road of hot colds here. Um, because I'm in danger of contradicting myself. And so I'm going to stop right here. <laughs> but I do want to say that the, uh, among other counties, 
San Francisco County has been designated, according to the New York Times on its front page that I'm looking at here, um, exposure risk in your area, since I am here in San Francisco, San Francisco County, California, it is at a high risk level. So wait a minute, why, if that's true, and I'm now looking at the page for 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 this, if that's true, dear listener, then why on earth is California Governor Gavin Newsom putting San Francisco County, as, the, as he did a week or two ago, into the orange tier, which is the, it's, okay kind of tier. You're not completely 100% in the clear, but you're better off than being in the purple tier. Why is Governor Newsom doing that? If what the New York Times is saying is true here. I do wonder, dear listener, about that. Um, And it's not just my county. It's any county. Why are people opening things up? It's not just Gavin Newsom the governor of this terrific state of California. Um, it's, it's others, right? It's anybody. Why on earth is... Why on earth are people opening these places up? And you know, it's interesting because the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, who I played you audio from, I think, earlier this week in this podcast. I mean... She made it very clear that she was really afraid. She was very fearful about what will happen. She is saying that she sees a surge coming or there's a great possibility of a surge coming as a result of all of these openings. And I'm telling you, when the CDC director says something, unless it's Robert Redfield, you should pay attention. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is not fear-mongering you. She's telling you what she's seeing, what the data says. Ah, ah, I'm telling you, we could have the scenario that we had last Memorial Day. Remember when everybody was liberation central and, oh, it's nice and warm, we're going to go out and we're not going to wear masks. We're going to get into crowds. And all those infections, and by the time we got to June and July, those rates shot through their roof. And I'm thinking it's going to happen again because people are going to be vaccinated and they're going to think the coast is clear and we need better education around that. And I'm looking at this report and although the rates seem lower, the risk is, the risk, the positivity test rates are up. 14 day average plus 1%. I mean, things are better, but still the air is still a high risk. Avoid non-essential travel. This is the New York Times. I'm not even reading from the San Francisco government website. It's the Times of all newspapers. Indoor activities pose a high risk. Right now, of course they do. Not just for San Francisco, but I see people going inside places in San Francisco. I mean, you go inside your grocery store, you've got to do that. I mean, I've done that. You have to go and gro- grocery shop, don't you? I mean, I, I mean, unless you order it from... And there's ways you can order groceries. And you have to spend a half a fortune. Well, no, you don't. It's not that bad. I've done it before myself. But, you know, and then the risk is you don't get what you want. And, you, you know, they get the wrong thing for you. And, uh, you know, I've had that happen. Which is why I don't do that anymore. <laughs> 
You've got to go out and shop for groceries. You you just, you do. Avoid events with more than a handful of people. You would have thought walking down some of the streets here in San Francisco, in some of the neighborhoods, that this pandemic didn't exist. Again, I told you about all of the people I saw and continue to see who are white, who don't wear masks. There's lots of people who are white who do, but the people I always see who, all, who aren't wearing them is always someone white. And I said this before, I talked about the context in which I said it. I talked about it on Twitter and I got people responding to me and saying, well, everybody does it. Well, yeah, maybe where you are, that's true. But I'm talking about the experience I have. Now address that. Instead of switching lanes to some other channel or turning the channel to some other question or viewing or programming that I'm not raising here. It's like how we choose not to listen to each other. I talked about that in the episode uh, earlier this week or last week. I, I think it was last Sunday. How we choose not to listen to each other. You know, I can listen to your concern, but when I have my concern, not you, dear listener, I'm talking you generally. I can listen to a person's concern, but when I air my concern, some of the people who I listen to, all of a sudden, ah, they've, they've changed the channel on me. Changed the channel. Oh, oh, well, they know it's happening somewhere else. Uh, let me not address what you're talking about. Let me not respond to it. I'm just going to go over here and change the channel. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I You know, look. Yeah, and so the New York Times, today, as of April 3rd, cases have stayed about the same over the past two weeks and are still high. Number of hospitalizations have fallen. Deaths have remained about the same level. The positivity rate is relatively low. Actually, it's at 1%, I guess, or plus 1%. And you won't get this information on the San Francisco Chronicles website because the San Francisco Chronicles is a piece of dung. It's a horrible newspaper. Everybody here in San Francisco knows that. It's the worst newspaper. And it might be one of the worst in the country. It's a horrible newspaper. And I really think they should, well. So anyway, so that's that with uh, that. (laughs) I said that before, didn't I? And why are people opening things? Why is there this rush to open things? I know why. I think I know why. Because again, business leaders, whoever they are, business leaders, these shadowy figures, these corporate business folk have probably got in Governor Newsom's ear and other governors around the country and said, look, we're pulling the plug on your re-election campaign donations. If on our donations to your re-election campaign, if you keep doing this, if you keep doing this to our businesses and our interests, you're not getting any money for us from us for your run in 2022. Gavin Newsom is running again for governor of California in 2022. Hence all of these recall efforts from these people, these Republicans who claim, oh, it's a bipartisan thing. It's not political. It's bullcrap. It is political. It is Republicans. It's racists who are running this thing. And they may get one or two Democrats who may join in, who are Democratic voters who may join in. But they have other access to grind that may, they may not be telling you about. And I just think it's garbage. And all these people who are doing these re-election campaigns are people who are well off, who are comfortably wealthy, who are comfortably okay. And they got nothing better to do in their rich ass lives 
than raise recall against Governor Newsom. Recall the governor. And they're all, none of them are poor. Trust me. None of the people who are involved in this effort to recall Gavin Newsom is poor. I guarantee you that. Because poor people are busy trying to keep a roof over their head. They work in three and four jobs from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. They're waiting for stimulus checks or whatever. They don't have time for this nonsense. And it's these well-off people or people who are comfortably well-off who are spending their idle time with this bullcrap about recalling a governor who, while I've criticized him for some things that he's made mistakes on and he's actually apologized for, the guy is doing a decent job here in the state. He can do a lot better in some areas. I've said that before, but I think he's done a decent job. I, think, I don't think he's been at his best with this pandemic, but he's done a decent job. And this notion that you want to recall him for all entirety over one thing, please. It's just a bullcrap thing. And they weren't looking at recalling him in the first couple of years. It's now over one thing that's right within a year of the election, just over a year from now. Oh, but now we're recalling him. I wonder why. Oh, is there an election coming up next year? Oh, let me check my calendar. Let me just check my calendar. Oh, here's my calendar. April, May, June. This is 2021. Oh, 2022. Uh, calendar's already 2022. Um, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. Oh, November, November 2022. Yes, there's a between this recall effort and next year. <laughs> oh dear. Now, you know, now the fact that the governor has now opened up um, eligibility for all of these different groups and everything to get vaccinated in California. Now, you know, now where's that recall effort going exactly? I don't care how many millions of signatures they've got. They've all got to be verified. And you know these signatures aren't, you know these signatures aren't verified. And you know that probably some of these signatures are forged. I know, I'm assuming, dangerous thing to do. But when have the Republicans ever done anything above board? When have they ever not been criminals? I know, don't go back to the 1800s. I'm talking about now and the last 70 years. When have they not been criminal? It's just a stitch up, isn't it? When I come back, finally, I will get to what happened yesterday at the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. I should talk also, by the way, dear listener, about the American jobs plan. That's something that also took place this week that I have not covered at all here. I will provide a link to the entire statement 
and the fact sheet of the American Jobs Plan, as put out by the White House, March 31st, 2021, was when this American Jobs Plan was announced by President Biden. And he gave a speech on it, too, to the best of my memory. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did not cover any of it because I was so much focused on this trial of uh, Derek Chauvin. This American Jobs Plan is, is tremendously good. Um, it will require, among other things, corporations to pay much more tax than they do, federal income tax. It will require an incentive for companies. It will give an incentive for Fortune 500 and other American companies to keep jobs here in the United States, although we know that many jobs have already been shipped out and aren't coming back to this country. Um, there is incentivizing to create good quality jobs that pay better wages, much better wages to the American worker. There's infrastructure repair, uh, you know, the richest country on earth, and we're 13th in the world in infra infrastructure, which is unforgivable. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I apologize to you for coughing like that. Well, not coughing, just clearing my throat, I should say. The roads and bridges that have to be repaired, that's another thing that's being um, taken care of in this jobs plan. Billions and billions of dollars are being spent on it. Upgrading drinking water in this country. Look, we know what happened in Flint, what's happened in Pittsburgh, what's happened in Newark, New Jersey, and elsewhere. The quality of water in this country, particularly in black and brown neighborhoods and communities all over the country is absolutely abysmal. We know what's happening with Flint, as I said, and all these other places where water and the poisoning of water, you know, and look again in Senator Cory Booker's state and in his city of Newark. Horrible what's going on there with water. It's not being talked about. Flint, Michigan, everyone's forgotten about the water crisis there. The, the killing and the poisoning of, of kids and adults alike. People coming down with Legionnaire's disease and dying. Still going on in Flint, Michigan. And you've got a former governor, Rick Snyder, who escaped any kind of criminality. He may have been censured. I don't know what. I don't think he was. He never got a slap on the wrist even for this. And some low-ranking or high-ranking official under him, I think, got a jail sentence or was found guilty. I don't know if he served the day or not in jail. But aside from that, there's really not much else going on, you know. Modernizing technologies and new technology jobs, clean electricity, 10-year plans. There's so much here, it would take an hour. <laughs> I laugh because it's been over an hour of this podcast episode. But it would take an hour just to read out all this stuff. There's a lot of stuff going in here. You can get to read it. I will link to it. And these are the kinds of things I will be putting in a newsletter going forward when this newsletter is ready so that you can more e easily if I can speak correctly, you, so that you can more easily digest, digest these things that I'm speaking about and you can link to them easier. It's cleaner to look at, not on the liner notes where some of you access this podcast from different places and on the platforms you look at, all of these things may be jumbled up into one and so therefore you can't read anything. Whereas on Apple and Spotify, you can because it's clearly laid out. Their formatting is such that it lays these things out correctly. Um, but I am going to have a newsletter so you can read all of these things clearly and easily and you can access them at your leisure. So this plan is so comprehensive 
and it's got to get past. This has got to, I mean, this is incredible. It deals with COVID-19 again. It deals with all these other things. Um, Long-term care services under Medicaid. And the graph that I know, President Biden is not for Medicare for all. But let me tell you something. This stuff is being put out there. On, it's going to be put on the floor, if not already. There's a groundswell for it. There's people like Frank Pallone in New Jersey, who last week or the week before, a Democrat gave the, gave the thumbs up to supporting it. Frank Pallone, I mean, he's more of a moderate slash, I guess, progressive-y, I don't know. But Pallone's good, and he's got on board of it. You've got to get more of those Democrats to do so in the House to put Medicare for All as a vote on the floor. Really, it needs to be done if it hasn't already been. Research and development, uh, technologies, infrastructure, bridges and roads and tunnels to be repaired and properly de- uh, eliminate the racism and gender disparities in research and development and science, science in STEM, science, technology, edu- engineering, and math. I mean, there's so much here. Oh my God, you've got to read through this. I've not read all of it myself, by the way. But there's also something that President Biden says is that we should make all of these things in America. I, mean, I know, I hope this really does happen. Many people have talked about made in America and make it in America, but has it happened? There's so much here. I know I've repeated that like a broken record on vinyl. The vinyl skips on as I continue to say that there's so much here in this plan. (laughs) The American jobs plan. Wow, this is really good. The American jobs plan, as this says here, the fact sheet, will invest in America in a way we have not invested since we built interstate highways and won the space race. This is the kind of thing that FDR might have done. And I think he's modeling it off. President Biden, I think, is modeling this off of FDR. The Bill of Rights that FDR did. The American Bill of Rights for for the worker, for the average person. This is really good stuff. And again, I want to talk more about it in a subsequent episode, hopefully Maybe as soon as tomorrow, because I, this has to be given a lot more attention. But I will put the fact sheet up for your perusal. It's a lot to read for those of you who don't like reading and for those of you who do like reading. But it's there to be read and looked at and dissected. And um, I hope you enjoy reading it because it's your homework. <laughs> Randy Rhodes gives out homework. Randy Rhodes, who does her great show uh, five days a week. She does. She gives homework out to her listeners, and I guess this is kind of homework for you. <laughs> I'm I'm stealing. I'm borrowing or st- or not play. I'm stealing. Well, I'm not really stealing. Homework is not trademarked. That's not trademarked. That is not. The word is not trademarked, and it's not copyrighted. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know how many schools would even be giving out homework to people if it was copyrighted or trademarked. By someone. Anyway, look. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think I should probably stop here. But, but, Derek Chauvin's trial, the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, that has um, that is now is now five days old. Um, it is in recess until Monday. Uh, for those of you who are following along with it, I've been talking about it a lot here on the Political Crime Daily Podcast. 
And um, I want to now play you an excerpt from Friday's events, yesterday's events at the trial. So please stand by for that right now. And I will talk about it on the other side. that video in its entirety yes I did and since then have you had an opportunity to watch other video of the incident yes and specifically have you watched uh, body-worn camera video of the incident from the involved officers yes and based on that uh, and your years of training and experience with the Minneapolis Police Department uh, you saw officer, then officer Chauvin with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, correct? Yes. Would you call what you saw there a use of force? Yes. And did that use of force continue until the ambulance arrived? Yes, it did. Was there any change in the level of force being used until the ambulance arrived? No. And what do you think about that use of force during that time period? I'm sorry. What do you think about that use of force during that time period? Uh, a little vague. Could you uh, limit it to uh, the time frame? Right. Okay. So, um, based on your review of the body-worn camera videos of the incident, yes, and directing your attention to that moment when Mr. Floyd is placed on the ground, yes. Um, what is your uh, you know, your view of that use of force during that time period? Totally unnecessary. What do you mean? Um, well, first of all, um, pulling him down to the ground, face down, and putting your knee on a neck for that amount of, uh, that amount of time is just um, uncalled for. Um, I saw no reason why the officers felt they were in danger, if that's what they felt. Um, and that's what they would have to feel to be able to use that kind of force. So, in your opinion, should that restraint have stopped once he was handcuffed and prone on the ground? Absolutely. And I should add to that question then, also that it appeared he had stopped resisting. I'm sorry. And it appeared that he had stopped putting up any resistance. Absolutely, I would stop. I have nothing further, Your What you just heard there was the most effective part of the prosecution's case yesterday during the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. That was the voice of Matthew Frank, who is the one of the prosecutors in the case for the state or for the city of Minneapolis, I suppose, um, Hennepin County District Attorney's Office, to be more precise. And the other person that you heard was the voice of Richard Zimmerman, who has been a police officer in the Minneapolis police force since 1985. He doesn't actually pound the beat anymore, if you will, as it were, but he is still a member of the Minneapolis Police Department. I mean, he has been a member of that department for over 30, 
five years, almost 36 years now. It will be June of this year or July of this year will be 36 years. 36 years. So I do think that Richard Zimmerman, who you just heard there say that the force used against George Floyd by Derek Chauvin was totally unnecessary. The defendant's use of force did not belong here. George Floyd was not resisting. Mr. Floyd was on the ground. Mr. Floyd was handcuffed. There is no way on earth that the force that you and I saw used, the torture used on George Floyd by Derek Chauvin, there is no way anybody who is human, who has a heart and who is humane, can sit and say that that was justified. It was never justified. Never. And as I said a few days ago, I forget which episode now, might have been yesterday or the day before. What was wrong with the Minneapolis police questioning Mr. Floyd when he was sitting down against a wall, handcuffed on the ground? He was sitting on the ground up against a wall with handcuffs on. I think that should have been enough. Why did they then, instead of really give him any questioning, why didn't they inst- why did they instead decide, oh, here's a bright idea. Let's throw him into the back of a police car. And this guy is six foot whatever, six foot three or four. Let's throw him into the back of a police vehicle. Wow, that's a really ingenious idea. Don't you think? And he's telling you he can't breathe, he's claustrophobic, and they still put him in there. So this guy who testified yesterday, Mr. Richard Zimmerman, um, I think it was a compelling witness. Now, that's the way I look at it. Again, the question is, how did that 12-member jury look at it? How did that 12-person jury see Richard Zimmerman yesterday? I don't know. That's my answer. Do you know that juries do not have to regard any of the evidence? They can hear the evidence, but they can choose to disregard nearly all of it or all of it. I mean, I remember that because that's what the jury charge was to me and my fellow jurors when I was sitting on a case. The charge to us was you may choose to regard or disregard any and all evidence presented. In your deliberations. I hope people know that because a lot of people I don't think realize that. A jury, at least in New York, and I don't know if anywhere else here in California or anywhere else. I think it's true anywhere that during the course of deliberations, a jury can choose to disregard anything. During the process of its deliberation. Now, it can't bring in anything. That was not presented in evidence, which is why people say don't, why the judges admonish and warn the jurors not to listen to the news, because you can't bring in anything into evidence that's not there. You can't consider it. Now, of course, human beings being human beings are going to do that anyway. Oh, but did you know that Derek Chauvin had a history of violence and had had 18 or 19 complaints against him in his 18 or so years on the force? Oh, but that wasn't introduced into evidence? Really? 
Oh, well, you can't consider that. So far, that's not been introduced into evidence, and we'll see if it ever is. I don't think the judge has allowed it in, but it should be allowed in, because again, this is the trial of Derek Chauvin, not the trial of George Floyd. And all we've heard all week was about drug use and how much drugs did he do? And you know he did use drugs, right, Courtney Ross? Are you aware of that? Oh, and I used two, and I'm a user too. I mean, that's not the blooming trial, but that's what we've seen this week from the prosecutors. Nothing about Chauvin. Do you know that Derek Chauvin had all these complaints and only one or two of them were, de- were dealt with and the other 16 or 17 weren't? And he's still on the force? until he was fired finally last year. Oh, but that's not going to be allowed in. You know, jurors supposedly aren't allowed to add that if they know that information exists. They're not supposed to consider it. Bring it in, I mean, to their deliberations because it wasn't presented in court during the trial. That's a pretty damn big bomb, excuse me, that you're not considering, that you're not bringing into evidence in the first place. And besides that, since I did say that juries are not required to even consider any of the evidence in their deliberations, first thing you might say to that is, what a waste of time the trial is then, if they can technically disregard everything. Second thing you might say is, that means they can disregard the videotape And the answer to that is yes. The jury in this case can disregard the video of Derek Chauvin torturing George Floyd to death. They can actually disregard that during the course of their deliberations. I'm telling you, you think I'm joking. That is a fact. Once that case has been submitted, once the prosecution has presented all of its evidence, once the defense has presented all of its evidence and all the witnesses from the prosecution have testified and all the witnesses from the defense has test- have testified and all of that is done and the charge to the jury is given and those deliberations begin Anything can happen. It's done. They can literally disregard. Okay, don't believe me. You can go check it out yourself. I'm telling you, uh, you may have sat on juries too, and you may have remembered this too. And I'm telling you, I've sat on juries, and that is exactly what you're charged. The judge reads out the charge for the counts of the crime, and the judge always said, also says to you, you as jurors may choose to disregard, consider, ignore any or all of the evidence, any or all of it. So you mean to tell me, Mr. Podcaster, that the jury doesn't have to what it does not have to consider the 10 minutes that Derek Chauvin is sitting on with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, who's handcuffed? The answer is yes. The jury does not require to even consider that in their deliberations which to me is downright disturbing, but it's the truth. They don't have to. Which is why I say to you, do not get happy about what you think is going on in this trial. 
This is why I said the, the other day, again, it is incredibly difficult in this country called the U.S. of A. to convict a police officer of any kind of crime, especially murder, especially murder. Maybe that's why they did this as a unintentional murder. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's the reason. It's the reasons I enumerated a few days ago. You know, again, that black life somehow in, in uh, the eyes of a dominant white society does not matter to them as much as white life does. I mean, case in point, I want to draw this analogy again. All of the people in Boulder, Colorado, who were shot dead by that piece of garbage were white. All of them. All 10 victims. And immediately, it couldn't have been less than a day after this vicious, evil act of terrorism happened against those 10 souls that the, uh, the police chief and the DA or whomever it was in Boulder announced murder charge, first degree murder, first degree for all 10. Now, I know that Colorado and Minnesota are different states. But do you see how swiftly, how swiftly first degree murder was brought in that case of those 10 people? And granted, they weren't killed by a police officer. As far as we know, this guy was not a police officer. But the point is the principle of it all. But in this case, where we have a videotape and we've seen a billion times what Derek Chauvin did, torturing a handcuffed man to death. Somehow you can't get a first degree murder charge in Minnesota? Come on now. And again, like I say, it, in this country historically, it has been very difficult to convict a police officer of killing somebody. It's very difficult. Although, like I said, a black police officer has no, oh yeah, well he got convicted, didn't he, in Minnesota, Muhammad Noor, of killing a white woman. But white police officers, you have to really look hard to find one or two. And there's been one or two. One in Kentucky, I think, a few years back. And one somewhere else in the South, ironically. But I, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it is very difficult. And if you think that this is going to be a, a slam dunk case for the prosecution who mumble and stumble and stammer and throughout the case. Excuse me for it. I'm sorry. But these prosecutors, again, have been talking like this. And do you think that this has happened? And what would you make of this? That's the tone they're talking in all the time. I don't hear any of them raise their voice. Not once. But I tell you who does raise his voice is the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, who I've ridiculed on here as half Nelson I've called him a racist because I think he is. One thing this guy is doing is fighting for his client, for his murderer, his murdering client. He's fighting for him. His defendant murderer, the murdering defendant who sits to his left. He's fighting for him. I can see that happening. Even yesterday when he responded to the direct examination that I played a small portion of, which was a good thing for the, the prosecution yesterday. Clearly someone in the department who's a veteran who's still there, hasn't retired, talking about how this was unnecessary. And that was that went along well, I'm sure. I hope the jury got it. But 
Then Eric Nelson got up there and tried to poke holes. And all it takes is one person on that jury, folks. And it's a win for the defense if that happens. If one juror says no, that's it. Can't try Derek Chauvin on... Well, it could be a mistrial. It depends. I mean, if he's acquitted of that charge... It's got to be all 12 acquitting him. It can't be 11 acquittals and one not guilty. Uh, not one guilty. It's got to be all 12. And when I say all the defense needs is one, that means it's a hung jury. It's a hung jury when... God, I hate that term. But you know why that term exists. But all it takes to stifle the jury is have one person say, nope. I'm not standing for conviction or I'm not standing for acquittal. And then the the case has to be tried again or not. The prosecution has discretion to either try the case again or not try it again. So again, I just want to reiterate my warning. Do not get happy for those of you who think that this is a slam dunk case. I don't know if it is for those 12 jurors, nor do you. None of us knows. Heck, the 12 jurors probably don't even know. We'll see. We'll see. That was Friday's um, very abbreviated edition of uh, the uh, trial. It was Good Friday yesterday, as I said, on the Christian calendar, if you will. And so Judge Peter Cahill shortened the proceedings. It was literally about four hours or less. Um, very, very short proceedings yesterday, about three, three hours or so. Not very long. Um, there was one mid-morning recess. And then then anything that happened after that was it. I think they had two witnesses before that. Before Richard Zimmerman, there was, um, I believe, I forgot his last name. His first name is John. Um, could be John Mitchell or John Collins or, or John Smith or whatever. I don't remember what his last name was. African-American police officer from the Minnesota uh, Minneapolis PD. And he testified as well. Um, I don't know that he really gave a lot of... I don't know that I really got a whole lot from him. I don't think he was especially helpful to the prosecution. He was more of a pro forma witness. I do think Richard Zimmerman, who is the uh, white uh, detective, uh, longtime police officer, a former police officer, but still very much a part of the Minnesota Police Department, I thought he was immensely helpful for the prosecution. Um, but my only question is, how did those jurors feel? It doesn't matter how I felt about it. It doesn't matter how you felt because you and I are not on that jury. Now, we are in the jury of public opinion, the court of public opinion, but we are not in that jury box, those 12 jurors in that jury room. God, could you imagine? Oh, to be a fly on the wall in this case, to find out what they are talking about. Can we have juror cams? Find out what these people are doing. It would never happen. Of course it can't. But what do you think so far about this first week of the trial? The trial resumes again, resumes on Monday. And I'll be talking about it, of course. But I'll try to add in other things also that are in the news that haven't been covered on this podcast. Because it's really important. We, uh, As important as this trial is, we've also got to keep aware of, again, as I say, a global perspective and what's going on around us. Um, rather than only just this trial, which is an extremely important trial, because the world is watching. The world is literally watching this trial. 
And I think week one, if I had to give a number out of 10 for week number one of this particular trial, I would give the prosecution a five right now. The defense attorney, I'd give him a five as well. I don't think any of these attorneys are particularly good. I don't think the defense attorney is particularly good either. I think that his strongest day was Thursday because I thought that the prosecution was really poor on Thursday. I've talked at infinitum about it. I think yesterday, Friday, the prosecution had a better day. And I think the defense attorney was just doing what he had to do for Derek Chauvin, the murdering uh, client, the murdering defendant. Um, But overall, uh, first week, I think a five for both, which means that means that the prosecution, in my view, is not doing a good enough job. If I'm giving a number out of 10 as a five for the prosecution and also giving a five to the defense, that means the prosecution ain't doing their job particularly well at all. The question is, what do you think the number grade or the number should be out of 10 for both the prosecution and the defense? And what do you think the jury's thinking about that? That's the real question, is what does the jury think about the performances of both of them? Because it's a performance. And if you're not showing passion, and if you're not showing animation, and if you're not saying the word defendant enough, there's only one of those attorneys on the prosecution side who is using that term regularly. That's Steve Slicer, who I've not talked about a lot. But he's somebody who has, to his credit, don't want to overpraise him because he's just doing his job. He's using the word defendant and he's using it regularly. And almost every time he refers to Chauvin, he refers to him as the defendant, which is good. I wonder if he's been listening to this podcast <laughs> or, or reading my tweets or someone else's tweets. I'm not. The, I'm sure I'm not the only one that said. I know I'm not the only one that said that that he should be referred to as the defendant. <laughs> oh dearie me! I don't know. I, I listen. I'm just glad I don't care what he's referring to. He's probably far too busy looking at his exhibits and and and, and prep rather than worrying about what. <laughs> Someone on Twitter or someone on a podcast said about, about, about the prosecution. But I am happy to hear that Steve Slicer, at least, is using that terminology because that's what Derek Chauvin is. He's the defendant. He's also the murderer. But, of course, since you can't say that in court, defendant is the best, the next best thing to say. And we'll see in a few weeks' time whether we'll be saying acquitted defendant or guilty defendant. Those are the two words that we are going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the word guilty or we're going to be looking at the words not guilty. And and that's what's going to be the litmus test, isn't it? Can a black person handcuffed with a knee in his or her neck for nine and a half minutes with a video rolling all the while Can that person and their family get justice in America? That's bottom line. I've already given what my answer is to that question. What's yours? Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. 
Dear listener, dear listener, yes, spring is here. Spring has sprung. And that means it's time for you to check out the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store at the-politocrat.myshopify.com for the exclusive spring spectacular collection. It's got everything you want. T-shirts, sweatshirts, long T-shirts, mugs, pens, tote bags, and so much more. More merchandise being added on an almost daily basis. I think you'll really love what you see. Colors, bright and sharp, logos and designs, all available now and designed by yours truly, Omar Moore. So please, now that spring has sprung, check out the Spring Spectacular Collection at the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. The address, the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Bye now. Thank you.